Like Stefan said, we are continuing our sermon series through uh, called The Word of the Lord Grows this week. We are spending time in the book of Hebrews, and uh, we're going to look at a little bit from Hebrews chapter 4, just the very end of it. But uh, before we dive into the Word, uh, you know, more and more, uh, I'm not just reading, I'm even beginning to kind of hear from people who are, who are saying, uh, look, look about, about their life, they're saying, you know, I didn't ask, I didn't ask to be born, I didn't ask for this life, and yet here I am. They're saying things like, well, what else can I do? This is, this is the life that I have. I have to now just live it, and I don't want to. And they, and they see life as this thing that is crushing them, as the, as the, as the main thing life is, is hurting them. And it seems to be this, this real cry from the heart, you know, and it's not just, you know, we have a pandemic or I've got no money or no job, spouse or no spouse, kids or no kids, the planet falling apart, war. It's this cry from, from their hearts that life is too much and nobody has asked for all of this stuff that is going on. And, and I don't think it's new, this, uh, it might be more pre prevalent because of social media, but it's not new, this cry from the heart about this dissatisfaction with life. If, if you read the Bible, you go back to the Old Testament, you come across the story of Job, and, and he's got a life. He's blessed, he's righteous, he, he's got a wife, he's got kids, he's got land, flocks, herds, he's got it all, and it's, and it's very good. But at one point in the story, it all gets quickly taken away from him. Flocks and herds get stolen, uh, all his children die, and then finally Job himself finds himself not just in this place of, um, of heartbreak and, and emotional agony, but also physical agony as his, as his body begins to get diseased. And it only takes about three chapters for this all to happen to get to this part where even Job himself calls out, perish the day I was born. Let that day be darkness. Let no, shine, no, no light shine on it. I wish I was never born. Basically, I didn't ask for this life. And what is the point of life if it's all going to just be taken away at the end? And what's really being said is what's the point of love if at some point loving leads to loss? What's the point of caring? Because once you start caring, well, then things get complicated. And one of the big challenges, the big questions we have to ask ourselves about life is, can I say yes to the gift, the gift of love? Can I say yes to it? Because if I say yes to that gift, then I know that at some point I'm going to be saying yes to grief as well. Can I say yes to the gift or the grief? How am I, if, if I can't do that, if I can't say yes to the good because I know bad is eventually going to happen, how am I ever going to be able to even just live and say yes to wanting to be alive? And how many times do we feel like not choosing that good thing, that gift that is coming, because in the end, we know that somehow something is going to go wrong. Somehow we're going to get hurt. And I was listening to this podcast, and one of the hosts, her, her mother had passed away, and, and her and her co-hosts, they, they dedicated the entire episode to her loss, to her grief. And they were talking about it, and she was open, she was honest. And, and at some point, uh, through the processing and the talking, she said something, and I don't know if it, was, if it was off the cuff or she was quoting something that she had heard before, but she was talking about how at the end of our lives, uh, there's, there's scars. Our lives get scarred. And all this heartbreak causes scars. All this loving and losing causes these scars on us. And she said, this is the quote, she said, if we're lucky, we're going to get to the end of our life with many scars. Not no scars, but if we are lucky, we're going to get to the end of our life with many scars. Not that we search for scars, 
but that we're open to the things that can break our hearts, that we can be open and looking for hope even though we may experience loss. You can look through all of the Gospels and you are never going to find Jesus telling you to love less. You are never going to hear Jesus say, hey, protect yourself because every gift that I give you could be taken away. You're never going to hear him say, protect yourself from every blessing because it could suddenly become a burden. You're not going to hear Jesus say, don't love because in the process of loving, you could get hurt. You could get disappointed. In the process of loving, you could get a scar. Jesus says we have to love more. We have to be courageous in our love and in our lives. We have to have the courage to care even while knowing that we could lose. Because the alternative, the alternative is insulating ourselves in these little layers of protection, of self-protection where heartbreak doesn't touch us, but at the same time, neither will love. Because when we turn inward in this effort to protect ourselves, our priority then becomes only self-preservation. We don't go to anyone. We don't let anyone come to us. We just prioritize self for the sake of not getting hurt. And Hebrews talks about hurt. It talks about being disciplined by God. It talks about a great cloud of witnesses in the faith who didn't ever see in this life what was promised to them, about who, who knew all about scars and hate break, heartbreak. But at the heart, at the heart of everything, Hebrews talks about a high priest, about a Jesus who did not protect himself from loving us, but a Jesus who embraced the scars and the pain and the mess. And there are a lot of verses about Jesus' love for us throughout that Bible. John 3, 16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. There's 1 John, we hear God is love. There's Romans, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But the text that I want to look at today from the book of Hebrews, which is a letter that we don't even know who wrote it, has this three-verse section right at the end of chapter four that speaks to a God who has scars, speaks to a God who understands gifts and grief, speaks to a God who knows us and who never closes himself off to us no matter what it costs him. And here's the scripture. Therefore, since we have a, a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he is without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Verse 14, the idea that Jesus is our great high priest is mentioned before in chapters 2 and 3. It's the, one of the main points of the book because of what a priest does. Preaches and teaches the word, intercedes between God and the people. We call that prayer and offers sacrifices. But the Hebrews author calls attention to the specific and unique character of Jesus as our, high, as our high priest because ordinarily the priest would once a year get to enter into the holiest of holies to make intercession to offer a special sacrifice that covered the sins of the people and their own sins. 
But Jesus is the high priest who passed through the heavens, who ascended into heaven, who's the son of God. And while other priests may have offered sacrifices, Jesus was the sacrifice once and for all. He doesn't continually have to now offer sacrifices because on the cross he said it is finished. And if you remember from Matthew, what happens to that curtain that kept you out of that holiest of holies was that it was torn from top to bottom. And now you could approach God because Jesus, the high priest, is there living forever, standing before the Father, interceding for us. And for this reason, the author tells us, be confident. Hold firmly to what you believe because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done, because now nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is priest and as priest, he is the peace in the middle of the storm. He speaks when all hope seems very far away or all hope seems gone. He is the one who speaks. He is the one who when the valley is low and long does not leave you alone but rather comes to you. He is the high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Next verse at 15, just as we are, yet he did not sin. We know that Jesus was fully God and also fully human. Scripture tells us that. Tempted. And he knows what it's like to be tempted. You have a Jesus who knows what it's like to wrestle and battle against sin like you do. And sometimes we think that because Jesus is God, he, he could never know the temptation that I've faced. And in part, maybe that's true because Jesus faced temptation much more severely than we ever have or we ever will. The sinless one, Jesus, knows temptation in ways we don't because only the one who has never given in to temptation knows the full strength of temptation. But Jesus knows what we go through because he has faced far worse. And instead of looking down at us and saying, I did it, now you do it. Come on, try harder. Instead of shaking his head at us in disgust and looking at us saying, what, what's wrong with you? He empathizes with us. He does not ever look at you in disappointment, but rather he looks at you in love. He is not disappointed with you. He loves you. You know, to the ancient Greeks, the, the primary attribute of a God was apatheia, the, the essential inability to feel anything at all. Jesus isn't like that. We're told that he knows and he feels what we go through. That ancient Greek word that we trample as empathize here literally means to suffer alongside you, suffer with you. He can empathize with weakness and our temptation, but not with our sin. But that doesn't mean that he's any less sympathetic to us. It just means that he understands us better because sin has a way of hardening us. And the one who is without sin does not have a hardened heart, but an open heart. We have a Lord who offers grace when our hearts struggle. Who offers a way when walls close in. Who stands alongside us. No matter how far we have gone. 
who seeks the lost. And when those waves of sin find themselves crashing upon you and setting themselves against you, it is Jesus alone who speaks and brings stillness. And it is Jesus alone who brings, by his power, freedom and forgiveness and love and leaves the debt of all that sin that we have racked up at the cross. So the author tells us, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. See, Satan wants to keep us from approaching Jesus. That's one of his central strategies. He wants us to think of Jesus as, as unapproachable, as out of our reach. He wants us to think of Jesus as being powerless to help us. That Jesus isn't in control, that he's so far away from you. But Jesus is the one who sits on the throne of heaven, who is the one who stands with you in the fire and says, come, approach with confidence. Confidently doesn't mean proudly or arrogantly, but it does mean that you may come to him constantly, without reservation. It means you can come to him without fancy words, and then you should come with persistence, without fail. For when we come, we receive mercy. That's not getting what we deserve, and we get grace. That's getting what we don't deserve either in our time of need. Mercy and grace and help. It's not about who has more help, who needs more right now. God's too busy to hear my little concerns. No, no request is too small because he wants you to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer, by petition, let your requests be made known to God. He says, cast all your anxiety on me because I care for you. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So go. Do not wait or overthink it or, or say, well, as soon as I get my life together, then I can go to Jesus. He says, approach just as you are to the king to give praise, to receive and to know, to lay down, to show your scars. I was reading a, a, a Jesus article. It contained a story about this guy. And when he was a child, his dad sat him and his brothers down and told him the talk. Not that talk. But the priorities talk. And he said to them, sons, you, you need to know that as your father, these are my priorities. Number one, God. Number two, your mother. And number three, you guys. And my priorities. And, the, and That's my priorities. And then I guess the dude actually lived it out. And I remember stopping and reading that article being like, dude, that is so sad. You're not number one to your dad. You're not, you're not even number two, you're number three. And then I was like, okay, I've, I, I know about this. I've been hearing this. I'm ready for this and be like, this isn't the life that I asked for where my dad sat me down and told me I was number three. But the author said it was, it was good. The author said it was good for him and his brothers because his dad lived that way by putting God first and had loved his mom, his wife, deeply, was committed to her and supported her and cared for her. And the author said that we wanted our dad to, to love God more than us. That's what we wanted. And we wanted him to love mom more than us. He said because it was freeing. Because we realized in that moment that our dad's happiness was not determined on our successes or on our failures. 
That our dad's sense of self was not determined by whether we as kids won or lost. That as the children, we may not have been the center, but we were loved. And because of that, there was freedom to fail. Because our dad placed his hope in Jesus, placed his love in mom, and we were third. And even as third, we got what we needed. Because dad doesn't need us to do or to be something in order to love us. What the author realized was that dad chose to love us, not burdened to love them. And that they got to feel that they didn't need to succeed in order to keep dad's love. And I want you to imagine that, that freedom for just a second. That they were chosen. That love wasn't a burden. And that their love wasn't dependent on what they did. Because that's what you have. The truth is God doesn't need us, but he chooses us. And God's happiness isn't dependent on whether we succeed or fail or we win or lose. We are free to fail, to learn, to follow. Because the truth is God loves us without needing us. And God doesn't hide from us because he's afraid that loving us, well, we might let him down. Instead, he reveals himself in Jesus to us, has come down to be with us, is Emmanuel, God with us. And revealing himself to us in this powerful, incredible way, he reveals ourselves to us. He shows us his identity and shows us ours. He's the one who said, we are made in what? In his image. And I said this a while back, that the deepest mystery, the deepest identity of God is love. And since we're made in his image, that means our deepest identity is love which means we're most like God when we're loving, when we give of ourselves, when we look around and say, where is there a need? And I'm going to choose to meet that need. In spite of the scars and in spite of what it's going to cost me to love, I'm going to choose to do it. How many times have you heard, you got to go out there and find happiness? You got to go out there and make a life for yourself, carpe diem. How many times do we make decisions about what's gonna make me the happiest in this moment. And that makes sense because who doesn't wanna be happy? But if we're made in God's image, made in God's likeness, then that hole that you're trying to fill, that deepest identity of God is not happiness, it's love. And life has to be like that. Our life has to be love, not, not how can I make myself happy, but how can I bring love? How can I bring the gospel? How can I bring truth? That God so loved the world that he gave that I can love even though I know it's going to hurt. And I can love even though it's going to cost me quite a bit. And you do that when you come to the heart of God who loves you, who has washed you, who has made you new, who invites you and looks you dead in the eyes and says, approach. And you'll not find harshness. You will not find guilt. You will not be told you're too inadequate you will not be passed over. You will find mercy and strength and help and faithfulness. And you will find scars. And his scars and your scars come together. And it is not easy. 
not easy to step into the light, to come to the throne. Because it's much more easy to hide in the bush. To think, well, what possible difference am I making? I, I, I'm not going to get hurt again. It's not like I can move that mountain or bring any change. I'm just one person. And look how big life is. I can't do it. But there is one. There is one with scars, arms open, hands outstretched, who says, come, my child. One who is a great high priest. One who has ascended into heaven. Jesus. Your Jesus. One who knows you and sees you. Who understands and empathizes with your weaknesses. One who is tempted just like you are each day, but does not sin. One who says, come my child, approach my throne, so that you can receive what I give, mercy, grace, and help. And every time of need, I am there for you. That is his voice speaking to you in this life, no matter what comes no matter what happens. Amen.